Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We're a group of PhD students studying computational neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Connor. And the topic for this episode is neuromorphic computing. Uh, so this is a term that's kind of generically used for a variety of ways of engineering hardware that makes the hardware function more like neurons in the brain do versus the traditional style of hardware that's used in most of our computers. For this, we read a few articles. Um, one of them was Neuromorphic Chips by Robert D. Hoff in MIT Technology Review, and another was Neuromorphic Computing Gets Ready for the Really Big Time by Don Monroe in Communications of ACM. So I guess we should go into what uh, in more detail what neuromorphic computing is and what it means and something of the history of it. So, yeah, so, I, I mean, I guess and a lot of these articles talk about this very overtly, and at some point I got interested in neuromorphic computing as an undergrad and, and looked it up, and kind of the first thing you see on the internet, which is actually, I think, kind of weird, uh, is who created it, which kind of suggests a small field, or at least was a small field <laughs> until recently. Uh, so, People, the name that comes up, like if you Google search neuromorphic engineering is Carver Mead, uh, who I guess coined the term and wrote the first kind of textbook that's kind of like a graduate level sort of short textbook on this, which I, I read at some point as an undergrad. Um, and it's a, it's a good read. Um, it's really enjoyable. And the way that it gets, like kind of the, the neuromorphic gets used initially uh, kind of is comes from electrical engineering, and people are doing analog chip design where they want to build small circuits that function like individual neurons with the intent of then wiring them up together to form uh, populations of neurons um, in, in a hardware implementation. So uh, to have something of the timeline here, the notion that what neurons do can be written out as a circuit diagram is somewhat old, that's been known for many decades, um, but the attempt to actually implement things and do computations in that way, this uh, field, Carver Mead, he started this in the late 80s and early 90s. So it's a relatively new field, even though people knew that what neurons do, how they turn their inputs into outputs can kind of be approximated with a, a, a circuit diagram. I think it's... Exp- I think it's worth here explicitly kind of spelling out the abstraction that we're talking about. So, right. So in electrical engineering, what is it that people do and how does that relate to what neuroscientists have done and are, and what kind of neuromorphic engineers are doing in this setting? So, right. Electrical engineers and physicists and people like that will take a physical system and it could be an electrical, uh, you know, electrical system that has kind of voltages and currents um, as, as the, the physical quantities being manipulated by that system. And they'll write mathematical equations that govern the voltages and currents and, and how they change over time. And so, I mean, that's kind of within the realm of physics, sort of. And what electrical engineers do is they want to design certain specific circuits to implement certain specific equations or dynamics so that, like, the voltage 
somewhere in the circuit can be controlled by the design of the circuit and what inputs are fed into that circuit. So that, that, this is kind of how early computers, early electrical computers worked. You would design a circuit that computed a function. So you put in some inputs to the circuit and the output would be the output. And at some point we switched to digital computers. But so like, let's stay in this world of analog computers for a moment. In, in neuroscience, uh, if you look at the physics of a single neuron, you can characterize how electricity flows in that neuron, and you can write the math for that. And you can kind of map that math to standard components that electrical engineers use, like resistors and capacitors and things like that. And so, you know, there's an equivalence between the sort of model in terms of resistors and capacitors and the equations. Um, so when the neuroscientist like Hodgkin and Huxley, who came up with the you know kind of original set of equations for the dynamics of an action potential. When they write out their equations, which tell you how the voltage across the membrane changes of a neuron, then you can kind of map that into a circuit, an effective equivalent circuit, in terms of engineering terms. And then there's no reason why you can't build that circuit. And that's kind of where we are with this. The, the observation that as an electrical engineer, using semiconductors and, and you know, Silicon chips, you can you can implement any function you want, and so you can implement functions that behave like neurons. And so, with a small number of transistors, it turns out that like you know, using just a handful of transistors, you can implement something that's like a neuron. Then you can kind of scale that up and take many artificial neurons that behave like some model of a real neuron, and you can wire those up and build a big population of neurons. And that's kind of the conceptual basis for what's going on here. So uh, we should uh, probably ask why someone would want to do this. Um, obviously, the computers and the technology that we have now work pretty well, and they're not neuromorphic uh, in, in most devices that anyone uses. So what people who are interested in neuromorphic computing like to point out that the brain uses far less energy to do computations of some similar complexity than our computers currently use. And so that's a reason that people want to figure out what about how the brain implements these computations allows it to, to do computations so efficiently compared to what we have right now. Because then if we can decrease energy use, obviously we can be doing a lot more for a lot less in our devices. So that's one inspiration. So, and just to be clear, right, so a lot of why the energy use is, is lower, I mean, kind of a big component of that is that in a, in a conventional computer, you kind of always have to push power through the circuit. Um, whereas in an analog computer, it's only power kind of in proportion to the amount that it's active. So kind of like the brain works in, in an analog implementation of a neuron, the power is only consumed, it, like it could, you could design it such that it's only consumed when spikes are occurring. That would be like one kind of example of how you could save a lot of power. So when, if, if a given neuron isn't firing action potentials a lot, only when the spike is firing is it consuming power. I guess, I don't know, is it the case that sort of efficiency of the use of the units, which, you know, maybe in a normal computer the kind of computational unit is a transistor, and in a brain the computational unit might be a neuron, what that exactly means is not really clear, but whatever. Is it the case that they're in the brain? The units are kind of used more efficiently. I was watching this talk by Kwabena Bohen, 
um, and he was making some kind of point that somehow as we get more and more transistors, we don't... He was, I think the point he was making is that they somehow don't do as much per transistor or something. It's not like much, as much computation per transistor. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, whereas in a brain, because all of the connections are kind of locally updated, he, he was making some kind of, he was trying to make the point that maybe in a brain it's more optimal. Every neuron is kind of doing something specific. I don't know if that made point made any sense. But. Yeah, I mean, I think there, generally there's a kind of conservativeness uh, in a good way to the way engineers who do analog chip design operate, right? They, they kind of caref- carefully design the circuit to do something specific. And so, like, the whole, I mean, this is what many electrical engineers do, right, is they design analog circuits that do a specific purpose, that solve a specific purpose. And because it's tailored to a specific purpose, there's less waste than there would be in a generic circuit uh, that's meant to do many different things depending on how it's being operated. And so a digital computer has a lot of waste because it has to be able to do so many different things. I mean, kind of conceptually, the reason why there ends up being a lot of waste is it has to be able to do many different things, so it doesn't do any one of those things as efficiently as a circuit that would be dedicated to that. And so, I mean, that would, you know, relate to the kind of conservative use of the elements that built that circuit. So you could argue that we have in our brain some specialization in the areas that process vision and process auditory information, and that specialization makes them more efficient than if it were really just the same circuit design everywhere in the brain without any specialization. That, that might be true. It also might be the case that the cortex is sufficiently specialized to operate on different sensory modalities. I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. But this is slightly different. This is saying that, right... Uh, like a general computer is like designed to do so many different things. I mean, we're not we're not even talking like within the realm of sensory processing, right? A general computer is, operates Word. You know, it's it's there to receive inputs from a keyboard and you know work with all of the different parts and things like this. I mean, very very basically at, you know, at, at a high level, um, these circuits are specifically designed to like only emulate neurons. Like they're, they're not. I mean, to do addition on a computer that's neuromorphic, you'd have to, like, figure out a way to make a spiking neural network do addition. Right. So you actually kind of have to almost re-figure out problems that are trivial on a regular computer in certain more costly ways. But the, right, we do, in order to simulate a neuron on a conventional computer, we have to do, like, many computations to make that work. Whereas, um, a neuromorphic chip, it would just be part of the design of the, the It would chip. just be physically... It would be physically realized. Yeah. But the, 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 the catch then, right, and this is kind of, you know, the, the key point, I guess, is to do things that are easy on a conventional computer sometimes is less easy on a neuromorphic chip. There's, there's no kind of free trade-off here. It's just things that are very, you know, neuron-like you can get done in a, in a neural chip, uh, but not necessarily the other way around. So... Roughly speaking, like one idea is that you, the brain seems to be able to do certain kinds of computations very well and apparently um, in a very energy-efficient way. And so it's easy to kind of have, this, have the idea that, oh, well, maybe we should try to build specific hardware chips that are sufficiently similar to the way the brain, to some part of the brain, so that they end up having similar benefits. They're very good at certain specific tasks and are energy efficient. And fast. And fast. 
Um, and so that's pretty high level. And then exactly what you mean by neuromorphic, I guess, we could dig into that a little bit, right? I think because that's worth, yeah. that's there's a lot of different notions of a neuron, for, for, for example. Like if you, if you are doing modeling in neuroscience, so you're writing down equations to describe, say, neurons or populations of neurons, and then you're analyzing those equations or you're implementing them in a simulation, the equations themselves are extremely varied. So you can describe a neuron at the level of a cell, which might have a, a whole morphology, it's the shape of the cell. You might want to describe the membrane, its electrical properties, the properties of the proteins that are embedded in the membrane, which we think are responsible for all of the interesting electrical properties that neurons have, like spiking. Or, you know, on the other end, we've talked before about like deep neural networks, which are also somewhat neural, in quotes, but in a very different way. They're very kind of simplified. They consist of simplified, abstract components which are in some way similar to a neuron, usually in the sense that they receive many inputs through something like a synapse, which basically, in the abstract sense, usually means um, an input channel that, can, can, that is kind of weighted and often an important detail is that that weight can be changed. And the output is usually some kind of simple nonlinear function of the weighted inputs. Vaguely like spiking. Yeah, vaguely like spiking in the sense that, you know, if there's not much input, you'll spike not very much. And then there's a kind of, and then you'll at some very high input, you'll saturate. So it's nonlinear. And in between, there's some shape of how your firing rate depends on the overall weighted input. Um, so that's kind of like neurons, but it's very different to a description that has a lot of detail. Um, and so therefore, if you think of neuromorphic computing as hardware implementations of just neural type systems in general, it follows that there'll be a large variability in what neuromorphic systems can look like. They can be implementations that involve transistor-based or other electronic component-based implementations of real spiking dynamics, or on the other end of the scale, they could be hardware-based, hardware, transistor, electronic, component-based implementations of much more abstract uh, neurons. When I was looking into this kind of thing, I, I found a few different themes or principles that people would hit on when they were saying that what they were doing was neuromorphic computing. Um, a lot of times it was about the hardware being analog versus digital. There was also... Right, so in, yeah, in a traditional sense, I think, kind of the carver Mead kind of notion is that it's an analog circuit that emulates neurons. Um, Real neurons with, with spikes? It, it emulates spiking level kind of point neuron models. So not complicated morphology, but just yeah. the fact that you're getting inputs and then you have some kind of continuous function of your inputs that when it hits a certain threshold sends an output to all the cells that that unit is connected to. So that's something like an integrated fire type model, yeah. Yeah. which in computational neuroscience would be considered kind of an intermediate level of abstraction or detail. Yeah. detail. Um, another thing that people cite as being a property of neuromorphic computing is the notion that you can do many things in parallel, so you have all your neurons talking to each other at once versus in traditional von Neumann-style architecture of computers, there's a bottleneck of information being passed, and it's considered more serial than in parallel. And so that's kind of a principle that people think of as being uh, something that can be helpful that can occur in neuromorphic computing is the notion of doing many different small computations at once and distributed across the chip. 
that you have because it'll be many neurons and it'll be distributed across the neurons and their interactions. Uh, and then there's also the notion of having these weights between these units be able to change over time so that the chip that you're working with can learn uh, so that it'll have a different output on the next time around because the weights of its input have changed in response to, to the thing it saw the first time it encountered a certain environment. Um, and then another thing that I came across was the notion of having stochastic uh, responses rather than deterministic because we know that the brain is noisy and maybe there's some computational benefit of having some noise in the system you're working with. So these are kind of some general principles. Maybe we should kind of touch on those more closely. But I think it's maybe another distinction that's worth drawing, and it's kind of dovetails off of what Connor was talking about before, is, is like the distinction between an algorithm and how you implement it. You know, if you want to implement a specific algorithm or, or sequence of operations uh, that's supposed to perform some computational task, we can basically, up to some, you know, with some level of efficiency and with some constraints, we can pretty much implement kind of any computation. It might be very slow in a regular computer. It isn't really that the neuromorphic chips are going to fundamentally enable things. It would just be like, if it's parallel, and you know, if, if the processing is parallel and things like this, it could be faster. Um, but and also, like at some level, what we're trying to do is implement certain math. And we can implement that math kind of in a conventional architecture or a uh, parallel architecture. And I, I think this kind of also gets into the issue of like other similar technologies, right? So like right now, some of the kinds of algorithms that people want to use that are that are, use neuron-like components, like deep learning, are done it, demonstrably faster on GPUs than on conventional CPU cores. And, and that's not necessarily because. Uh, the GPUs are more neuron-like. It's just there's different ways of implementing. Those yeah, so it, it, it turns out that some are faster. The operations they need are kind of matrix-related operations, and those can be done fast on a GPU. And a GPU kind of does bits of that in parallel. And so, you know, it's not clear for deep learning applications maybe if there's much imperative. Right, so GPU is a graphics unit, and so like those are exist on many computers. It's not cl clear if there's an imperative to make deep learning specific hardwares when you can already do a pretty good job of speeding them up relative to the CPU on a GPU. Maybe all you need to do is keep using GPUs. So that specific example, people train them on GPUs, right? That's true, yeah. So a difference, so like you could imagine that you would train the network on the GPU, GPU and then you would take your trained network, which would essentially be a bunch of weights between different units, and then you would like build that onto a chip. You, yeah, and you can build a trained chip onto yeah. uh, into hardware. So maybe that possible. chip would be trained to do object recognition, and maybe if you built it on a chip, it would be really fast and energy efficient, and it would just do object recognition. And so the reason that that makes sense is just because these, when we talk about deep learning, we mean that there are these networks of artificial neurons that are connected by weights, and they can execute certain tasks, like taking an input as an image and giving a label. And so they are... They're, the units of the algorithm itself are neurons. They're usually just implemented on traditional computers, and the idea would be to implement the same thing on hardware that more closely mimics what you were doing just with mathematics uh, on a, a traditional computer. And so, so that's one. That's definitely one kind of clear option. 
that maybe makes neuromorphic computing seem a little less relevant to that specific case. But then there are other kinds of neuron-like models or algorithms. Well, if it is the case that you can train on a GPU, but there's some benefit to executing on some neuromorphic chip because of energy consumption or something like that, then that's still a clear role for neuromorphic. That's right. Yeah, yeah, but that's completely fair. Yeah, you train it, it takes three months, you use like a big massive supercomputer, and then you print the output onto a bunch of tiny and then chips and put them in phones. Yeah, can have it. So, so, so people talk about that as, as another option, but it, I think, I mean, so we're kind of going off on a specific direction, and I think this is a valuable one, right? I mean, it's, it's not clear that you need to have a specific chip to do everything, especially when things like cloud computing are available. So if the rate at which the technology is going to improve is sufficiently fast, then you might imagine that you wouldn't actually have a benefit in ever, like, making special purpose stuff. If, like, the special purpose stuff needs to be updated every month to keep pace with, like, what the best technology is available algorithmically. Yeah, so I think that's an important point about kind of the history of neuromorphic computing. It isn't something that's been very deeply studied or there hasn't been much progress in it, partly because the traditional methods have been growing as we've expected with Moore's Law for a long time. And so we haven't been pushed into the realm where it would really be worthwhile to figure this stuff out. I mean, there's a sense that it will be faster and more energy efficient, which is based on the empirical observation that the brain is fast and energy efficient for complex computations that we do. But there has to be a lot of effort still put into figuring out how to actually execute all these computations with neuromorphic chips. Uh, There's also a related point, which is that the kind of people who might say, hey, I'm really excited about our neuromorphic chip, want the chip to operate in a closed system. And so there was a demo of like a a, a neuromorphic chip being used to operate a quadcopter. And there, maybe that, that's a useful application because a quadcopter has power consumption, probably doesn't have access to the internet, and there's constraints on power consumption. Something like a phone, it's not clear if the phone would ever need to have neuron chips inside of it, maybe, because if it has access to the internet, then there can be a big, costly, inefficient, conventional computer running a state-of-the-art algorithm not in the most efficient way, somewhere off in a factory or warehouse somewhere, whatever, uh, you know, Google's cloud. And you can use any algorithm you want. It can be slow. It can be, or it, can be, it, does, it can be slow, but it can be on a big computer. It can be not energy efficient. And it can go to a phone, and the results can go to the phone. And then, like, the computation isn't even done there, so you don't need to have, like, an efficient chip there. So for the quadcopter example, maybe it's more compelling than for a phone. It seems inevitable to me, though, that at some point... It's be much better to have. If it turns out that the brain really does do implement certain algorithms in like really nice, efficient ways, and we can implement similar things in hardware, like at some point it'll become beneficial. Right? Yeah. So maybe for like systems that don't have access to the internet and are uh, energy constrained, I think it makes sense. I mean, that's what humans are. Humans are a computer that are not don't have direct access to the internet and our energy constrained. And That's so, a weird point. So then <laughs> when, we, when we do have access to the internet, because we will eventually, right? Well, I, think, will be I don't know. It'll happen we'll in parallel. Happen. If we can get direct access to our brains with the internet, we probably could understand how to build neuromorphic chips because we understand neurons enough to directly interface with them. Yeah, but if the internet connection is so fast that we can like outsource our thinking to the cloud 
what will happen to our brains. They'll become redundant <laughs> and we'll just use them to play like angry birds in parallel <laughs> to like doing science or whatever. Or to, yeah. okay. But uh, I think even even if technically you don't need this in some sense on your phone, I think Google would still want their giant supercomputer in some warehouse to be operating as efficiently as possible, especially if the claims that people make about the difference in energy are true, then it would, it's not just some small, like, oh, we could be doing, like, 2% better. It's many times over more efficient. Yeah, so I mean, Google would have an incentive, or whoever is hosting large computers would have an incentive to have very efficient computers and be able to house them in smaller spaces and have yeah, them so work quickly. My, again, I, I, when, I, when I've looked into this in the past, not as uh, not super recent, this number, but I, you know, I, the number I kind of hear is like, oh, we can get like an order of magnitude better power consumption. Oh, you hear much, you you hear hear much better? Than like five or six orders of magnitude. Okay, well, depending on who you use. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the definitions are hard to... to so really also, it depends. Easy. So I mean, people, define, have, ha, people have realized an order of magnitude, so 10 times better... Okay. Power consumption in actual in actual systems, normal yeah. systems, and of course this is for but people make these claims like oh the brain is five times more powerful. It's obviously very difficult to define to quantify that. Yeah, and you need to somehow have a brain do a particular computation, then have another like a computer do the same computation and like measure exactly and generate exactly. And so in the case where they, you design a neuromorphic system, right, you're going to you're going to try to assess. You know how well does it? How efficiently does it do this relative to, to the to the conventional architecture doing the same thing? But also, it's a specific thing. And so, you know, I'm not. I mean, this was we're you know we're we're actually you know relatively young, and before our time, hardware was frequently in science special purpose hardware. Right? People had workstations where they did computing that was special purpose, and people are kind of moving away from that as a trend. I mean, it you know in our academic lifetimes. That has not been the norm, though it was like in the 90s. And there's a certain appeal to that if you can get things done more effectively. But if what you need to do and how it needs to be done is developing very rapidly, then there's not as much incentive to build special purpose hardware to do any given thing because you need stuff that's general enough to – so you don't have to – every six months when the algorithm changes, you don't want to have to buy a new hardware. And, and that, that's why I'm, I think there should be measured caution with these kinds of things. I mean, yeah, if you want to build a quadcopter that can autonomously fly and doesn't have access to the Internet and needs to do so with low power consumption, build the best thing, and maybe the best thing is, involves a neuromorphic chip. Yeah, but at the same time, people speak about these. I mean, okay, and for, to be fair, it's actually I know almost nothing about it, but maybe it's a little fanciful when people... You know, if you read some popular science report about something, it's probably going to be, it's probably going to sound flashier and sexier and more awesome than it really is. Like, it's just always true. Um, but people who are very enthusiastic do talk about, like, it's just totally loose. There's no reasoning involved in this. But it's like, oh, the brain is, like, flexible and dynamic. And you can, like, tell people, people have brains, right? And you can tell them, like, oh, do this thing. And then they'll, like, respond in a flexible ways to your instructions and stuff like that. So then people, so then people say, like in these kind of interviews, pop science magazine interviews, say things like, "Oh yeah, but imagine like a computer, a phone where you can." Well, there was some example: the guy's phone goes off in a meeting um, because he would change the time zone, but his time didn't update, so he had an alarm set and it went off in the middle of a meeting, and he was really annoyed. And he was trying to turn it off, and he wants to be able to just say to his phone, "Don't do that," and the phone will like learn. 
this was made. This comment was made in the context of talking about neuromorphic computing. Like, it's not obvious what that has to do with neuromorphic. Computing. Yeah, a conventional computer could do that. Right. A good learning algorithm that's not implemented in neuromorphic architecture could totally solve that problem. So, in some of the discussion about it, there's like this: people make this. Um, uh, what's the word? People just conflate brain-like flexibility, which is a, which exists, which is a statement about algorithms. I think. Like, the statement that the brain is flexible, whatever that really means, is a statement about the kinds of algorithms and computations brains do. It's not necessarily a statement about the implementation. Right? Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I think that people are, people feel uncertain about that. They just know brains do certain things that I wish my computer could do. Let me just try to be as brain-like as possible. But it's still, yeah, that, that example with the phone learning, it was very kind of not aware of the fact that you still have to tell these neuromorphic chips how to update their weights. If you could create a chip that could update the weights between the neurons automatically, you still have to come up with the rule that would make it learn the appropriate way. It's not like you just put a bunch of fake neurons on a chip and they understand how to organize themselves and then solve your problems for you. There's still a whole field involved in figuring out how neural networks can appropriately learn the tasks that we're interested in. So, uh, honestly, it strikes me, and it, when I, at one point when I was, you know, getting very into neuromorphic engineering, at, at some point it struck me that, like, it, it kind of dodges what I would consider to be a lot of the difficult problems with solving neuroscience problems, right? There's a whole field of people trying to figure out, like, how does the brain work? What computations is the brain performing? How can we write computer code in conventional computers to solve those problems? Neuromorphic engineering sidesteps all of that and says, if you know what algorithm you want to implement, let's figure out how to build the hardware that lets you implement it like the brain does, or kind of vaguely similar, some intermediate level, right? I mean, it isn't, in, it's not implementing it in terms of real cells and things like this. It's trying to implement it, like, I mean, it's obviously silicon. So it's, it's when they say neuromorphic, right? I mean, it's not like you're growing a brain. You're, you're building out of silicon, things that function at some level of resolution in a way that's equivalent to the brain, but you have to know exactly what you want. And contemporary neuromorphic architectures are apparently more rigid than what a regular computer can do. I mean, people talk about them as being flexible. That's because you're building a specific algorithm that's supposed to be flexible and comparing it against, like, a generic computer, not an algorithm on a computer that is a flexible algorithm. I think um, one, one thing that I find... So, yeah, I think the neuromorphic... The word has a lot of kind of encompasses a whole a kind of a huge range of things, which I think really are actually very can be very are very distinct in some ways. One thing that I kind of like the idea of, and again, it was this talk by Bohen that I was watching, which I mean, I don't know much. I don't know the details of it, so I don't know how. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I know almost nothing about the details, so I, I can't say how like good it is or advanced or you know make any kind of nuanced criticism or or assessment of it, but just the general notion. If you could build brainish chips that include, and this is the thing that I think is interesting, some of the flavor of brain development, like in, including synaptic plasticity rules, just put in stuff that we know, even if it's kind of local, like we know, oh yeah, if two neurons are connected and they do these kinds of things, then this is how the synapse will change. Or, you know, in the developing eye, um, there are these, we've discovered a few kind of simple rules for how neurons connect together, statistically speaking, or something. 
I like the idea of being able to build chips um, that are similar to the brain in some way, that have kind of neurons and that can do these kinds of things, that can have plasticity and can have kind of, you can put in like developmental things and then just watch them, see if self-organization happens, see what kind of structures emerge. So that's very different. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of, like, it maybe very much in the future. Is, but but that is, that con- is that conceptually different from doing the same thing in a conventional computing mm-hmm. architecture? You can simulate the exact same thing on normal computers now. This would just be having it play out physically on a neuromorphic chip. Which is aesthetically yeah. pleasing in a certain sense. Yeah, it is. Like, but it, I don't know. I, f- I, feel like, I feel like at a large scale, I feel like, like, from my experience of using computers to do simulations, I feel like that could be faster and more efficient or something. But maybe that's to just you, wrong. To, to use the hardware, you're saying, would just be, it would be faster. And that's true. You can, you can run, you know, it, it's quite possible that like on your laptop, it will be slower than using a custom-built hardware to implement the same algorithm you're trying to implement on your laptop in some high-level programming language. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know, using you know a MATLAB or a Python and trying to code is obviously going to be slower. Than yeah, using, it's a, chip that using a chip that's designed to do the exact yeah. algorithm in that language you want. To be fair, I think a lot of the people interested in neuromorphic computing do acknowledge that it is specialized for specific tasks and can be good at those tasks, and that's what it should be used for. So I don't think it's like there's some larger long-term grand goal that once we really figure everything out, it'll also be very flexible because we'll figure out how to have local learning rules between these uh, artificial neurons on the chip and maybe we can figure out the right learning rules that make it do interesting things. But a lot of the people who do it now seem to be interested in specific uh, things to apply it to. Like one of the articles mentioned that there was... Um, a neuromorphic chip that was modeled on the odor processing systems of insects, and it was made to recognize plant species by their flowers or something like that. And so it was a very specifically designed thing to do a specific task, and it apparently worked well for that task, and perhaps you know worked at lower energy and faster than a traditional computer could have done that. Yeah, but I think this just really gets at this. There's something about research which is like you're never really happy with what you've got, so you've got to keep on improving it. Whereas, I mean, here it's like if you know the answer to a problem, some sort of limited odor processing system, or maybe a bigger problem in the future, like we know how the whole brain works and we want to build a robot and have it have low power consumption or something like this, you know, for these settled problems where we're comfortable with the solution and we're not really thinking, hey, I'm going to iterate on that solution soon. It might make sense to build a special purpose hardware to solve that problem. If that's a useful problem that has kind of industrial applications and you would want many copies of a chip that solves that problem. Mm-hmm. So kind of it's, it, you know, from a research standpoint, it's not clear how useful it would be. It's useful as a kind of commercialization tool to effectively distribute Efficient chips, yes. Efficient solutions to a specific, well-contained problem. But that's the same way that analog hardware or special-purpose hardware has always been used. I mean, since electrical engineers have been developing custom chips for custom solutions, like, that's what they've been doing. They, They build a chip that does a specific kind of thing. It does seem like neuromorphic computing sits at a weird area where they are trying to just build a chip that does a certain job well, but they're constrained by a desire to have it be neuron-like. And maybe for any given task with the technology that we have right now, it's just not optimal to use a neuron-like chip. 
maybe it's not optional to use the generic chips that most of us have in our computers, but there's some other version that is optimal. And so there's just a desire to be neuron-like because we know that it should work really well, but we don't know how to make it work really well now. So we justify doing it by having potentially suboptimal neuron-like solutions to small problems. But I don't really have a problem with that just because just because something isn't immediately applicable and the most useful solution right now doesn't mean it shouldn't be researched. Obviously, academically, you can go look into all the neuromorphic computing you want if you think that it's an interesting thing to think about and you think that perhaps in the long term you will be able to create a computer that is more flexible and more energy efficient and faster than what we have today. Yeah, I think it's really cool, actually, I have to say. Like, when people start selling their stuff, like it's gonna, like it's breaking through some barrier and going to like change the way whatever is done it's annoying if you don't, if you're not convinced of that but like coming up with little concrete like physical models of neurons and stuff like this i find that kind of very appealing in some way just in a yeah, I agree i mean i think intellectual it's a, i think it's aesthetically appealing yeah um you know, and I it makes me think of the future, like robots that are going to walk around with these things. In yeah, but I mean, that kind of appeal, like, I mean, so there's a, there's a, there's like a sort of like st- stupid little anecdote that I've heard a number of times, which is like, like we look at birds and we see how they fly, but then like when we build planes, right, they fly using com- they don't fly. Very, very different principles than birds fly by. I mean, there's, you know crude similarities but yeah they don't flap their wings right they have they go really fast like a, a, a an engine and so like I, you know the same kind of thing I think is that's a very you know superficial cautionary tale but I think it you know could apply here which is like even if we learn how a specific thing is done by the brain the way that it might be efficient to implement it might not look much like the brain does it we don't know why the brain solves things the way it does. There's weird evolutionary and biological constraints, and maybe it is best if we don't try to stick to those and figure out that solution. Maybe we should just figure out some unconstrained solution based on what we're capable of doing. But the deep net thing is, is a concrete example where it seems to have turned out, at least for the next little while, that a brain-ish solution to a certain thing is good is a good is like the best solution we have actually. I think artificial neural networks are interesting in that sense, but depending on the field that they're applied to, um, it, there kind of was nothing that was working very well at all. And I mean, obviously, there's no. I mean, it's hard to make a relative statement here, but it seems like the type of computers we have now work pretty well, and they're increasing at the, the pace that we want them to, and so. Certainly, in some situations, we might find that the biological solution is the best one. But I don't know if the implementation is one of those things. Like, yes, maybe algorithm, uh, algorithmically, it's a good idea. But maybe or maybe not in, in terms of implementation. It matters. Yeah, it depends on what you mean by neuromorphic, though. If all you mean by neuromorphic, like, if all the neuro part of the thing, of the artificial neural network, is basically the algorithm... And then you design a chip, which is like the only reasonable way to design a specific hardware implementation of that algorithm. Then you know, yeah, like the the, the algorithm was neuromorphic or neuro something, and then now the chip is neuromorphic in a kind of inherited way. So, so you're it's just not, saying, you know, but it might still be that that thing ends up being like a neuromorphic chip, and it's the best way to do it. It's the most energy efficient way to do it. And then mm-hmm. all you've gained by having the chip be specific 
is what you would always gain by any specific. I mean, I think there's, a, there's another thing to be said, which is deep learning is framed as like neural networks. Yeah. And the math is kind of written in an object-heavy way where we kind of talk about certain terms as being neurons. But if you just step back and think about it, like if you were an alien and you were looking at what people call neural networks in math, it's basically matrix multiplications yeah. followed by like some thresholds. But maybe that's what the visual cortex does. Well, that, that's fine. But my point is, is like, it's a stretch, I think, to really like call that a neur- neural neuromorphic algorithm or like a neural inspired algorithm. It's like the neural. way we think about it, it, it is. I mean, like the way it was developed, it's history. Yeah. comes from human beings kind of thinking about the brain and then kind of abstracting it a bit and trying to write down some like super simple math that looks vaguely like what they think the brain is doing and it turns out that that's useful for certain tasks. And that's cool. But like the implementation level of how we implement these is like kind of like matrix operations. And so not, not to say that the like at an abstract level maybe the brain is just doing a matrix operations. I mean that's Connor's point, right? But it's not clear... That we need to think about thinking about principal design choices. We need to know how to do matrix operations fast, and GPUs can do that. So you know, it's not clear that there's like much neuro inspiration required for the implementation. I think that it's fine, though, as I said, to go down this path. Like you, you know of one thing in the world that works well, and so you look at it and say, okay, what are some principles from it? And you know. We listed some of the principles about parallelism and uh, that sort of thing. There's also notions of having local connectivity on the chip or having parts of the chip that aren't active very often, uh, like sparsity in the brain is a concept that people talk about. And so maybe just thinking about those things, acknowledging that they exist in the brain, and then thinking, well, let me try it out here. Even if the the path starts from trying to replicate the brain on a chip and leads to some morphed version of the brain because that's what we found actually works best that's still fine i don't i don't have any problem going down this road and exploring it because it's a reasonable starting point versus you know no starting point at all or just branching off of what we have now it's kind of you're just jumping to a whole new space and exploring that and seeing what comes of it yeah so i mean largely i agree with you and i think it's a fun space to explore All, all i'm you know wondering is if it's really worth big companies like qualcomm and ibm spending lots of money to develop neuromorphic chips when they don't really enable much beyond what we can already do with conventional architectures. Yeah. It's supposed to be efficient and things like that, but it's not clear what the, the end goals of that efficiency are right now. And, like, I mean, uh, you know, I kind of suspect it's either for sort of marketing appeal for the company or to gather uh, intellectual property related to how to design neuromorphic hardware in general in case down the road that turns out to be something that's useful for consumer applications. But right now, like, I don't think it's easy to... I mean, again, it, I, yeah, keep keep trying. It doesn't seem like immediately there are concrete applications. Sure, yeah, I can imagine that there will be in the future. So I'm it not, is I don't a very new it. field. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it started, you know, as we said, in the early 90s and then didn't have much progress for a while and it's kind of only somewhat recently re-emerging as something that's even being taken seriously, it seems. And so, as you said, like Qualcomm is doing it, uh, IBM is looking into this kind of thing, and the Department of Defense funds a lot of research on this, things like the, the quadcopter. Uh, they're interested in those kinds of things. And Connor spoke before about the group at Stanford called Brains and Silicon are researching these things on the academic side. 
So it seems like companies certainly have some sense that it'll pay off for them by whatever calculus they're using. Even if it's just maybe getting good advertisement in maybe. journals. <laughs> also, um, so we've spoken previously about the Human Brain Project, or the Blue Brain Project, as it was once known, and they have a whole uh, portion of what they're doing that's devoted to neuromorphic computing, and theirs is kind of the most controversial to me in its usefulness, because they claim that they're going to create this kind of neuromorphic computing core that neuroscientists, researchers can have access to, to to run experiments on. And I think this goes back to the notion of, do you really need it to be implemented as a neuromorphic chip, or can you just implement the same equations on a standard computer and you'll be able to get the same scientific answers? Uh, it seems to me like there's not really a need to implement your models of neurons on a neuromorphic chip when you're just asking scientific questions. I can understand for energy reasons if you'd want to, but if they're building one neuromorphic core and expecting all researchers to use it, it won't be more efficient for you to wait for the time to get on that core when you can just run on your own computer something similar. So that seems like a more controversial use to me than even companies trying to develop things that will work on quadcopters. It's also public money. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess a couple of the distinctions we've touched upon Uh, not trying to summarize everything, but just a couple of the distinctions, are kind of this distinction between real and artificial neurons. So, like, there are different kinds of scales at which you could model a neuron, kind of sub-cellular, where you look at, like, the protein-level composition of it, all the way up to just kind of treating it as, like, a point that has some function describing its voltage or something like this. And that's kind of closer to the end that the artificial hardware implementations are. And, you know, when you want to, as a scientist, want to play with models, you don't need to implement them in hardware, right? You can implement them in a computer, or you can implement them in the hardware. So there's many different ways of implementing artificial neuron. Uh, And then there's the kind of what you can do with networks of interacting neurons. So obviously the brain has many different neurons that are interacting. And, you know, in in conventional computers, you can implement networks of neurons, but you can also implement networks of neurons in hardware given hardware models of neurons. And the brain clearly is doing lots of different things. The real brain is clearly doing lots of different things. When we make a model, it performs some computation, uh, probably more specialized than the whole brain is doing because we've programmed it to do something relatively constrained. And for the time being, there's only so much flexibility in a neuron-based algorithmic model or something like this, how flexible it is, and it'll do kind of what we tell it to in simulation. And so if you want to port that to hardware, effectively you're not gaining much over the conventional hardware, sorry, the conventional simulation-based approach. But you you could, you're not gaining much computationally, but you're gaining speed and power efficiency, potentially. Those are the kind of, the drives to it. I mean, if those are significant, they can obviously be Relevant soon, Mitch. Like I don't. You need to know how quickly it'll be relevant. You need to know numbers. I don't have a sense of that. I mean, like phones are not. Don't seem very efficient to me. Smartphones run out of battery fast relative to the time scales that people want to use them on. Yeah, but I think a lot of that has to do with the the wireless communication that a phone. Yeah, that's the most energy intensive thing. So I mean, well, then if you had a neuromorphic chip such that you didn't have to connect to the cloud all the time. Well, no, and your neuromorphic chip was more energy efficient. That's, I don't think that's very compelling. I mean, you're, to, the primary operation of a phone is to connect to other phones or the internet. Or I mean, 
conventionally other phones now, the internet, you know. So onboard computation is probably not the main. It's not the bottleneck, yeah. Phones. I mean, lighting the screen is also, I think, somewhat yeah. intensive, actually. Yeah. Google just uh, put out that they have Google Translate available to be downloaded and run on a phone without internet connection. They created some more compact form of it that can yeah. run. It's not neuromorphic. Yeah, I mean, but not, there seems to be, for, the companies do express interest in having onboard versions. Yeah, yeah. So I, as I understand it, onboard versions of things aren't very hard in contemporary architectures either. Like it depends on the thing and the size, that. and if you want it to be responsive. If we could, so as we said, right now it seems to be the case that the learning on neuromorphic chips isn't as advanced as it would need to be to really be helpful. It's kind of done in a the, the changing of the weights between neurons seems to be done in a way that's more like traditional computer architecture. You can just change all the weights and then you have a neuromorphic computer or you could kind of download the weights and have one, but we don't really know how to change the weights efficiently online. Uh, I mean, but like, even in like a deep net, function evaluations, so like testing a new image and getting its class, like what, what object is in that image, is not very costly. What's really costly is the training of it. Right. And so, like, these onboard things that companies provide only have to do the kind of evaluation side. They very rarely have to do the learning. Yeah, but that's what um, I'm saying. If we could have neuromorphic chips that were able to do local learning rules online, that could potentially be very helpful. You could have your own phone learn things about you very quickly without even time, having to connect to the cloud. By the time we have neuromorphic computers and a good enough understanding of learning that you could have something to learn online presumably standard uh, hardware implementations of similar things would have would be like massively advanced because well, that seems people, very far so, down the road to me right no I agree and but I think so people especially people who write about neuromorphic computing it seems are of the sort that feel like Moore's law is slowing down and we're not going to be able to just have infinite computing power as we go on and so you know th- there is a push to go into some different type of architecture so if you do believe that kind of the end of times are coming for standard <laughs> transistors then you know you you would believe that it's worthwhile to pursue this it might be that the end of more and more like smaller and smaller whatever transistors and what is Moore's law basically the the number of transistors that you can fit on in the same space some. kind of grows exponentially. With but also, some, right? there's, there's like kind of two components of it. One has to do with memory. One has to do with uh, transistor size. Okay, so anyway, like compute power. If you assume the transistor size thing is st- stopping, yeah, that still doesn't have much to do with the fact that if there's good internet access, Google can just build cities of servers and, you know, yeah. If you don't need to have tighter and tighter transistors, if you do everything on the internet, then the main problem or the main bottleneck becomes shipping data around as quickly. Yeah. Right. Like so Moore's law might not be relevant for the yeah, why, why why is there is there a compelling argument that like if Moore's law if we just hit a limit, like okay, we can't make transistors any smaller now anymore ever again. Because they hit an atom, you know yeah, <laughs> or something like that. I mean they're already close to that. Oh right. yeah. well that's what quantum computing is also supposed it's to be. It's also kind of quantum computing. Yeah. So that's a whole other that's probably gonna be more 
relevant than neuromorphic computing. It does no, sound I think, cooler. But, like that, that's a tight competition. Quantum computing is going to be very energy heavy, which is cooler. <laughs> which is cooler. Quantum versus neuro. Those are two buzzwords that really bite each other. Neuro quantum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> quantum neuromorphic computing is the future. And then that'll be super intelligent AI. It will. It will just wake up as soon as you call. <laughs> the first time it. someone <laughs> even thinks about like, it. I feel like yeah. If we say it <laughs> three <laughs> times, it'll just it'll be turn. here. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. But I, mean, <laughs> I can imagine like geeky guys like telling like it's like you must not be named. Shut up. But yeah, no, I mean, I, it's not clear that. Yeah, I, I don't think that Moore's law is necessarily relevant as you said here because yeah there are there are ways of effectively getting more bang for your buck using cloud computing things like this and you know faster transmission rates and things like this so I mean those are things I mean there is there are there are limits to that as well having to do with like channel capacity that you can push mm-hmm. through the air and stuff like that <laughs> it would be like warm because <laughs> 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 Everyone will get cancer <laughs> all day. So, I mean, after discussing this for a while, and, you know, kind of my intuition even before discussing this, is that neuromorphic computing is a fairly broad topic, and you can kind of call a lot of different things neuromorphic computing, serve different purposes, approach the problems totally different ways, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, it gets back to something we've talked about before, which is, you know, computational neuroscience is itself kind of like a broad field and kind of anytime you do some sort of neuroscience that has math involved at all or computers involved at all, it's, you know, kind of computational neuroscience in a hand wavy sense. And so this is kind of similar. And I feel like it's kind of somehow easy to hide behind this label of just like, we're doing neuromorphic computing because we do something that we interpret as neuromorphic computing because we basically implement some neuroscience like algorithm somewhere in, in some custom something. Um, but it, it isn't necessarily the case that all of these approaches are more flexible than regular hardware or more energy efficient, especially if they're using, you know, kind of something on the more conventional side of their, in terms of implementation. So I think that's something to, you know, this is a pretty broad topic. I think the thing that ends up working well will be what history calls neuromorphic computing. And so we just have to wait and see for that. Till next time.